This episode of The Candid Frame is brought to you by the Charcoal Book Club. Their carefully curated selections reflect the best in contemporary photography, all for a reasonable price. And they're delivered directly to your doorstep each month. They offer free shipping to the U.S., Canada, and the U.K. It's subsidized elsewhere. It's a great way to begin or expand your photo library. Join the club at charcoalbookclub.com today and remember to use the code the candid frame at checkout and receive a 10% discount on your first membership payment. We also have the support of Frames Magazine. It's a quarterly publication that showcases the work of many of the best in contemporary photography, including Steve McCurry, Martin Parr, and Amy Vitale. Each issue is beautifully printed and thoughtfully curated by its editors. It's a wonderful way to discover and be inspired by great photography. Subscribe today and use the promo code THECANDIDFRAME to enjoy a 10% discount on your monthly and yearly subscription when you visit readframes.com forward slash join. Personal projects are one of the ways that photographers develop their voice and their style. By focusing on a particular subject matter, theme, or idea, a photographer encourages us to see things through their eyes. The results can reveal something new or challenge us to reconsider our assumptions or beliefs. The work can show us the history of a time and a place, resulting in a historic document whose importance goes way beyond nostalgia. Harvey Stein has been photographing Coney Island in New York for decades. He began photographing Coney Island long after its peak at the turn of the 20th century. Yet, it still possessed a unique quality that has always made it a quintessential part of New York life. Coney Island People 50 Years is the third in a series of books he has produced on the beach community, focusing on what continues to make the destination so special for New Yorkers, tourists, and photographers. This is Ibadi and X, and welcome back to the candid frame. Okay. Uh, well, but how how's been how's been your how's your I, I, I've been well. Um, you know, my new the book came out. It was delayed by three or four months. So it's supposed to come out in May and it came out September first because of the shipping delays, really. It was mm-hmm. the peak of the shipping delays in the LA port or long Long Island. Not long, long, long beach port, I guess it is. Yeah. And uh, it seems to be doing well. I mean, yeah. And I'm, I'm going to India for my first overseas workshop since COVID. Have you uh, taught workshop in India before? Oh, yeah. I've done five or six. Yeah. Oh, okay. I'm a veteran in India now. I, I have to count, but I think five or this will be my probably my sixth one. Where mostly in Rajasthan, but I did one in Kerala, which is way south, south east, I think. Fascinating area of India. So this time we're going to Delhi, which is not in Rajasthan. I guess it is. I'm not sure. We're going to Agra, Varanasi all the time. It's the most incredible city in the world, I think. In some way, it's the, the holiest city of India. It's on the Ganges, and it's where people 
bathe in the dirty waters and and where they cremate people in public mm-hmm. uh, on the shores of the of the of the river and then we're going to a new city called Lucknow that I've never been to but it's 8 million people and supposed to be pretty terrific so we'll see what fascinates you about photographing in, in India there are the people i mean that's what i do my workshops are about the people the colors, the smells, the food. The people are really open to being photographed. They're curious about us. They want us to, they want to photograph us, us being Western people. It's, it, it's noisy, it's poor, it's rich. It's so full of contrasts and crazy. I mean, people going to the bathroom on the streets, uh, getting their haircuts on the streets. Everything's in public. Yeah, that's, that's one of the appeals that um, towns or cities where mm-hmm. life happens on the street. Right. Um, so much about what happens, especially here in in Los Angeles and probably any sort of big city, is that so, so much of life happens. Absolutely. Within, within the context of four walls. Right. And... In terms of, you know, people being out on their porches or, you know, sharing experiences on their street, on their street corner or, or yeah. on a town square. A lot of that stuff is, is, is gone. Even in the small towns that I, I visited, um, you know, Walmarts and things like that have, oh. yeah. have, have, have destroyed like small communities where people on the weekends would hang out in the town square and yeah. it's only like in foreign countries that, that, right. that sometimes you sort of experience that. You'll get that in Mexico for sure. I, you know, I, I went to Mexico. I have a book on Mexico. I think you know that I, maybe we did an yeah. interview about it and, and I love Mexico because of the families and the parks and on the streets and the town squares and the old men. Um, India's like that also. Not that they have town squares that I can remember seeing. It's not like organized that way. But they're they're just out. They're just out. I mean, they live in shacks, and the the ghettos are accessible. We can go into the ghetto and walk around and shoot. Um, Mumbai, Bombay, has uh, two million two million people in a, in their ghetto, and they have schools. They have lawyers. They have shops they it's not like a, a ghetto that we would think of i mean they have a university they, they have dentists but you can walk where they live and it's like really poor really poor mm-hmm. but these people like they like it and they live there and it's their city they don't even go out of the ghetto it's not a, like a ghetto that we have i don't think but it's it's very poor i love the spirit of the indians i mean they're really upbeat they're, they have a can-do attitude. Nothing's too difficult for them. And their 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 favorite phrase is "no problem, no problem." <laughs> they share that with the Jamaicans. Oh yeah, no problem, man. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> they they overpromise, of course. So from my guides to my agent, who I work with, there it's it's like crazy, but it's. I don't know. It's just fun. Everything's on the street. Any food. We don't eat street food because you'll get sick. There's no question about that. Or drink the water. Just, 
you know, bottled water. You have to be careful. The, the danger is you getting sick from what you're going to eat or, or drink, not that you're going to ever get mugged or attacked or anything. They're very, they're gentle, really, I think. Maybe not to their own women on the streets from what we hear, but otherwise, yeah. yeah. It's, it's a facet. And there, there's so many languages, there's so many um, religions and costumes that go with the religion. There's the Jains. I'm not even sure what they are. There's, uh, there's like 20, 30 religions, different sects, and different villages that, you know, just have a certain kind of group of people. We try to go to a lot of villages to see really how they live. Oh, it's amazing. It's an amazing. Have you, you've not been there? No, I've not, not been there yet. Yeah. Yeah. But hopefully go. it will be. Go. I say there's two kinds of people in the world, those have, that have been to India and those that haven't. And I would really recommend <laughs> it. I mean, it's, it's amazing. And you, don't, and you can be in the cities. You don't have to go into the villages to see all this crazy stuff. It's in the cities also, where old, old, old ways of life and living. And the cities are huge. The main cities are huge. Mumbai, I think, is 20 million. 24 million, uh, New wow. Delhi is about 20 million, 22 million. And then Kerala is a southern state. It's totally communistic. Their government is a communist government. You see posters of Che Guevara and, and uh, red, the, the flag of communism. And it's 100% educated. Everyone there gets an education, maybe through high school. So it's very literate. Every state is is different, you know. And I haven't even gone to the north, you know, in the Himalayas. I'm not really, or Punjab, northern places. We really haven't gone to real northern places. What would you say um, are some of the surprising similarities? Uh, with respect to photographing people between your experiences in India and what you've had in Coney Island, Coney Island for the last 15 years. <laughs> wow. You know, wherever I go, and I've gone to lots of places now, I mean, with my workshops or on my own, people are the same. People are the same. They have the same values. I mean, they may not have the same amount of money or education, wealth, but... They want to be safe. They want, they want to eat, have food. They need a little bit of money. The similarities, um, they like being photographed. Even in Coney Island, people like being photographed. They're out on a, <clears throat> a, a fun day for themselves. They're not uptight. They're away from the jobs. They're in, in a, a, a beach area that's full of... Uh, Music from the amusements, there's amusements, there's the beach, there's fishing, there's the pier, there's swimming, there's the boardwalk, there's the amusements and the rides. And India's like that. To me, it's like a, an amusement park in a way. I've never thought of it quite like that in India with the That's colors, lots of music, the noise, a lot of noise, street noise, the smells. It's sort of, yeah, similar in that way. Maybe that's why I love both of them. Uh, I mean, India is definitely my fav most favorite city, uh, country to go to, no question. I like places like Coney Island 
we have Venice Beach out, out yeah. here, which bears some similarities to right. that. And, you know, what you've described in terms of all the different activities that happen uh, at these locations, these, these yeah. people from all these disparate communities, class, race, cultures that just come together mm -hmm. to just have fun. And you see a certain level of uh, exuberance and people sort of shaking off pretensions and right. being themselves in ways they would never be elsewhere. Absolutely. There's There's been a rise in, over the last decade of these of sort of fake public squares that are commercially owned. Mm. I don't know to what extent you have them in New York, but we have several here in, in Los no. Angeles where they make it seem like it's a town square, but it's all about commerce mm. and, you know, stores and restaurants. Right. And there's there's nothing about people letting their hair down or or having, like, fun. It's about going to these places, walking around, sort of right. people watching. But there there's something about locations like, Coney Island and 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 Venice Beach, where there's a there's an unpredictability. Right. There's a certain sort of wildness to it mm -hmm. that I think is really fascinating and really speaks to the need for people to be able to express themselves and to be within a community. There's an ed ed edge to Coney Island. I, I wouldn't say it's wild. A wildness but there's an edge and yeah. it's and there's a funkiness and that's what attracts me and it's the same thing with india there's a funkiness to india however you might define funkiness um i mean there's poor there's people in i mean in india people aren't having fun the poor people some of them are they're really working hard 12 hours a day for two dollars two dollars a day wage you know so i don't know that they're all having fun for sure it's 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 the poverty rate there is staggering uh but i think i mean the the, the um emphasis on family is large there and helping each other so the camaraderie and the family aspect of india as well as mexico I'm sure you've been to Mexico quite a bit. I find the the, the families really family life is much more at least on the street is is more important than I can what I see here. But families is like for example when we were coming up, our family would go to Venice. Actually, we'd go to Santa Monica, and we would do. What I think I, I forget how long the distance is. I think it's less than three miles, and we, as a family, would walk, you know, back and forth, and that was a a, a, a fun and a, and a fond memory that I ha have of mm. going out there and walking the boardwalk. Right, and I see a sort of a lot of families going out there to sort of, you know, just enjoy sure. being out, and and that's a big part of. The Coney Island experience, I would imagine, because in reading, um, doing a, a variety of different reading about the place, it's it's a place that people who grew up with it right. frequently bring back. their kids. Yeah, right. they love coming back, yeah. and they, that it's, they wanted to make, they want to make a part of their right the, the things that they life. share with their with yeah. the kids. Yeah, yeah, but you know. When I first started shooting in Coney Island, 1970, it was 
70s and the 80s, it was a dangerous place to go. It was, it was decaying. The rides were not, not very good. They were old and they were disappearing. There was a lot of empty lots. Do, dog, guard dogs against uh, uh, behind fences barking at you if you walked by. Even on the boardwalk areas were empty. It was a lot of emptiness. It was like a, a wasteland and, and unsafe at night. So I rarely would go there at night. But you're right. I, I know a lot of people who grew up in Brooklyn and would go there with their dad or their family, even then, or in the 60s and 70s. Uh, and, and then they they say that they bring back their, their own kids. But Coney Island only has become a family destination in the last 10 years from its uh, from being really down in the dumps. You know, and, and the difference between Coney Island and the, the squares that you're mentioning is that Coney Island has a history. I mean, it's been around mm -hmm. since 1850, where your new squares. And I think maybe you mean also like a shopping area, shopping center. Yeah, right. Yeah. yeah. I actually was in L.A. last year for Thanksgiving. We were in Dana Point in um, South, and we came up for the day with some people and uh, we went to a place it was a it was a, it had a huge christmas tree i can't the grove is that what it's called the grove yeah mm -hmm. yeah is that yeah i liked it I, but it is it was all uh you know stores and restaurants but it, and they had a trolley and they had santa and all that and this was thanksgiving and that reminded me of like a little amusement park with stores but it just probably was there for the last five or ten years, I don't know, as opposed to Coney Island being there nearly, what, 150, 1850, 1950, nearly 170 years or so. So, big difference. Coney Island, for me, is very authentic, and that's what draws me to it also. <clears throat> it's very real. It's poor people middle-class people. You don't see a lot of rich people. You don't know if people are rich there or not because you're not dressed when you go there. I mean, well. Exactly. You know. And it's black, it's Hispanic, it's Jewish, it's um, white, it's Asian. So it's, it's, it's like a melting pot. And it has been ever since its inception. I was doing a good amount of uh, reading about the history of Coney Island because I've only yeah. been there once. Oh, really? And yeah. it was really fascinating to to see the history and how it how it began yeah. and how it was sort of a counterpoint to Brighton Beach, which was uh, a sort of a beach destination for the more affluent. Uh -huh. And that this Coney Island sort of started taking shape as an alternative to that that kind of welcomed the working class, especially immigrants. Uh, who were living in New York, and how it got, you know, you had three amusement parks in there, that right. it was just, it was um, a phenom in terms right. of what was created there in terms of commercially, in terms yeah. of the, the rides and the events and how it's social dynamics. It was, yeah. you know, it, it was it was as, as celebrated as it might have been, you know, it was also known as, you know, Sodom by the Shore, Right. Because they had, right. a, they had a brothel there, they had pickpockets, yeah. yeah. they had, you know, yeah. all the things that yeah. people probably were yeah. concerned with during the 70s. 
kind of existed there even from the beginning. Absolutely. They had elephant, they had an elephant thing there, you know, but actually Coney Island, its first inception, only rich people went there because it was so far away. Mm -hmm. You needed a, a coach or something to get there. But when they put in this, this uh, they put in a train and then the subway in 1904 probably reached there or a little later. And that's what brought the masses in. By the teens, 19, 1915, in that time, then it became really opened up to the masses. And with these different theme parks, Luna Park, uh, there were three major parks. And they kept burning down and then rebuilding. Yeah. So they had a lot of issues. Things falling down into the sea. Yeah, it was... It was I'm glad I wasn't there then, actually. And, <laughs> yeah. And a lot of entertainers. I mean, uh, jo Al Jolson, Jimmy Durante, all these, I mean, in the, in the 20s and 30s. The heyday really was the teens in the 20s and 30s, I guess. And, and then after World War II, it started falling apart. And then there was alternate entertainments like tv started and radio and movies so it it went downhill pretty quickly in the 50s and 60s and mm -hmm. i got there in 1970 and it was it was still what i liked about it was that it was it was decaying and and i, I liked that atmosphere i didn't it wasn't a bright airy family area with lots of uh, characters and poor people and areas of decay that I was kind of drawn to, actually. Yeah. So, and then in the 90s, Giuliani and then Bloomberg, after Giuliani, put money into it and uh, rescued it. And in, in 2008, they tore down the park that was there. And, and, by, and in another year, they put in a whole new amusement park built by an Italian amusement company, and it's still there now. And, and they upgraded. All the rides were new and different. Uh, and so for the last, since 2010, it's had a remarkable resurgence. It's a location that has always uh, celebrated eccentricity. Yes. Especially the characters. And freedom. Um, freedom, yeah. Yeah. But but yeah. but tell me about that because I know you're 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 drawn to people, and since there's no shortage of characters on right. on Coney Island, tell me about the experience of of creating images of, of characters and 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 just people in general. Yeah. So one thing before I do that, now it's getting gentrified <laughs> to finish that historical line, and families are back. And pushing out the characters, <laughs> so for me it's a mixed bag. It, there's there's new high rises being built around in, in the neighborhoods of Coney Island. It doesn't affect the boardwalk, but it affects the kind of people that are coming there now. People with their more with their families, and it's a bit less interesting. So the characters are being pushed away. So I would, uh, you know, so I would gravitate to these people who looked unusual they could be poor but they're not they're not like vagrants or anything or they're not 
homeless. There's, you don't see homeless people there, which is interesting. I hadn't thought of that. No one, homeless people don't hang out there for some reason. I'm not sure why they wouldn't. So that could be at Coney Island that I'd be attracted to people who look different, dress differently, behave differently, not not um, psych, psychotic, but rather uh, maybe they're uh, speaking, uh, reciting poetry, singing, uh, dancing. There's a lot of bands out there that are Puerto Rican bands. It's still very ethnic. So uh, people start dancing on the boardwalk. And then what uh, they're... they're I don't know. They're drinking a little bit, not not booze so much, and eating, and wearing some outrageous clothes. So those are the kinds of people I might be uh, attracted to. Uh, I also look for the light if they're in great light. I mean, I, I do photograph. Pho I photograph events like I'm going to the uh, polar bear swim on J January first. That's going to draw three thousand swimmers into the water. In Jan on January 1st, so it's freezing. Uh, it's for uh, fundraising. It's for charity. And there's a group called the, well, the, the, the it's called the, uh, it's a polar bear Coney Island Swim Club. It, it was originated in 19, it started in 1903. And it's the long, it's the oldest swim club in America. They go wow. in the water from, uh, November to the middle of April, and then they're not around in the summer because it's too warm. So I photograph them, and that, and they're uh, they're great because they go in the water and then they come out and they're all red and they're they're freezing, and but they've never said no to be fo to being photographed. Uh, so that happens every Sunday at one o'clock, and I'm usually there a couple times a month, maybe. In the winter, there's just so, there's just so, there's there's so much to shoot. There's bands, there's weddings, there's models there. A lot of models being shot, so I horn in on that maybe. And there's ordinary people <laughs> like I, I like old people. And it might be a group of old men sitting on a bench, and I'll go up to them. There might be a Mexican family on the on the beach. I have a photo in my book of a Mexican, you know, maybe 20 Mexicans on a on the beach. It's one of my favorite photographs that I took in 1980 or 82, and I just discovered it. And they're sitting, and they're sort of arranged in a circle, and I'm right in the middle shooting them. Or a group of teenagers on the beach acting out, and I'll go up to them, and they'll act out even more when I point the camera, you know. So there's just endless life there. And, and there's crowds. I sort of don't like July and August there because of the crowds. It's too, makes it harder to shoot in a way because I like dis, not, I like to get close with my wide angle lens and fill up the frame with them and have a background that gives us the sense of the place, like a ride in the background. Even if I'm on the beach shooting, uh, and we're, 300 yards away from the wonder wheel i want the wonder wheel in the photograph to say where we are not that you, we would know we wouldn't know anyway i don't know it's it, i think it's a combination of these characters there was a guy named captain bob who would be in a sailor suit 
older man, and he would give tours. He's gone now. He's gone. There's a guy named uh, Eddie who was on the fish on the pier every time I would go there. He's gone now. I mean, there's a lot of old timers that sort of probably just leave or pass away. I mean, I don't know. I've been going. I've been going there since 1970, so it's like 52 years. I don't know. It's just. It's. It's just. It never. It's. There's something always different there. And often I'm bored, like, oh, I've seen this, I've done this. But I'm assured that every time I go there, I'll find something new to shoot. And I like that. There might be a new ride. Something might burn down, and then there's an empty lot, and then next year there's a new ride. Uh, or there's a change in, there's, uh, a change in, in, in the configuration. I mean, it's like... It's like um, building blocks. There's no real built. There's built. There's not many buildings there. I mean, other than back in the neighborhood behind it. So it can change very quickly. From I would say from year to year. Yeah, one of the things you mentioned is is you use a wide angle lens, and since the beginning you've been using a twenty one right. millimeter lens right. with 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 your Leica, right. and you know it's 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 a focal length that really demands that you work close. Close, with, absolutely. With your subjects, so you you engage with your subject. It's not yes. like you're making the majority of your your images surreptitiously. Right. Talk to me about why you started with the twenty one millimeter lens and how you've learned to engage with people in order to make the the photographs work. Sure. So I've told this story before. I had a my first teacher in 1971 or two, uh, and then I started teaching for him after that. Ben Fernandez, I don't know if you know him or his name. He's getting glossed in history. He passed away last year. He, uh, uh, Hispanic American, he lived in Spanish Harlem, 6'4", 6'3", big guy, little overweight, huge man, big voice. So he was my first teacher. And he was a major street photography in the 70s. He photographed Martin Luther King. He photographed that movement. He did a book on King. And he said to me in a class that I took with him, get a Leica, get a 21-millimeter lens, and go to Coney Island. So being the good little student that I was, I did all those things, and I still am doing it, you know. And I went there with this lens, and I, I started using it. And I, it, I took to it right away. So now my long lens is a 35 millimeter. I never use a t- telephoto lens. I use a 21 on one of my Leicas and a 35 on the other. I shoot 80% film and 90% of the film is shot with a 21 millimeter lens. And you're right, you have to get close for to make a meaningful image. And I just was, I just, Solved my picture. My photos weren't so good when I was far away, and I just kept pushing myself to get close and engage with the people that I'm photographing. I don't photograph candidly if I can help it. I I uh, I always or I mean I do some candids, especially if I'm in a foreign country and I don't know the language and I can't go up to people. But even in Mexico, I know a little Spanish. I would nod. And, and, and shake my head and they would nod and we, we, we'd communicate with body language. I want to engage my 
subject because I think and two things I ask them, look into the lens, not to look at me, but look into the lens, which is looking at me in essence, and don't smile. So I want to control the, even on the street, and I think I'm atypical for most street photographers because I do this. Most street photography is candid work. I don't like candid work. I like, I think I'm sneak, I don't feel clean when I'm doing that. It's like I'm sneaking, I'm not, I'm not giving them the chance to participate perhaps or to say no if they really don't want to be photographed. So I started going up to people and going in with a compliment. Oh, I like your tattoo on your shirt, on your sleeve, on your arm. I like your your hat. I like your your blouse. I like the red color of your your shirt. Meanwhile, I have black and white film in the camera, you know. So, but I try to be genuine and honest about why I'm going up to them. I'm not going to say I like the wrinkles on your face, but I, I'll say you look great in that light. And that usually disarms people. I compliment them, and it usually disarms them enough for me to to work with them for a minute, two minutes, five minutes. And I, and I want them to um, acknowledge my presence, that I'm here on this earth also, and that we have a little bit of a dialogue. I've made friends during this, doing this. I met my ex-wife in Central Park, going up to her and photographing her as a stranger. We started talking. This was in the 70s when I was young and cute. And we started talking, <laughs> and I said, wow, do you want a photograph? And she said, yeah, okay. I said, okay, give me your number. I got her number, and one thing led to another, and we got married a couple of years after that. didn't last forever, but it was okay while it lasted. So, I, 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 you know, I, wanna, I, 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 I like people. I want to feel connected to people. Um, I'm not looking to make friends or to find wives or anything, but... It's lonely walking around all day, not speaking to anyone and just shooting. So I, I, I try to go up to people who I think I would be interested in because of what they're wearing, because of what they're doing, maybe because of how they're behaving, and try to photograph them. So I get refused a lot, but I, I go try to go up to them without being threatening I'm not jumping on them. I'm, I'm getting close. I'm speaking to them. I have they see my camera, and depending where we are, I'm, I'm more or less successful. I mean, I, in Mexico, probably fifty percent of the people say yes. Manhattan, the same. Brooklyn, seventy-five percent of the people will say yes. India, ninety-nine percent of the people will say yes. I was in China in 2019. Everyone said yes, and they and they and they hold their fingers up, which I don't want. So that was a problem. And I was shooting. Uh, well, I was. Oh, I shot the Macy Day Parade here in New York. The clowns and the people in in um, costume for the parade. I got into the parade route before the parade started, and they're all smiling and happy. So I shoot them smiling. And, and I will shoot anyone, photograph anyone smiling. And then I'll ask them, can you be serious? 
I think a smile is, is phony. It's for the camera. It's not who they are. And it softens the picture. I want a, I want a hard, tough gaze if I can get it. Yeah. Even even angry to make the, and I I want eyes into the lens, because that personally engages me, and I think would engage the viewer that there's a tripod set up between the photographer, the subject, and the viewer, and it pulls people in more, who are viewing the photograph if there's a direct contact, eye contact with the subject. I might be wrong. I'm sure I. I'm sure this can be de debated, or a, a demure look down or up might be attractive or aesthetically nice, nicer than a direct gaze, which could be a little harsh. But I think that's phony too, looking down, looking up, looking, smiling. I, 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 I try to be authentic, as authentic as possible with my work. The recent flood in the studio forced me to move my book collection out of harm's way, and thankfully none of them were damaged. But a good thing that came from it is that it gave me an excuse to go through some of them again. It was great to feel like I had discovered the work for the very first time. And because I have changed so much as a person and as a photographer, I saw some of this work with new eyes and a different appreciation. And that's the magic of any book, but especially photo books. I can return to them again and again and never tire what I find. Camera equipment will come and go, but a great monograph will stay with me forever. That's why I'm such a fan and a supporter of the Charcoal Book Club. They help photographers get their books into the hands of people who will enjoy and treasure their work. There is no better source of inspiration than a bookshelf with exceptional and quality work. It's why I believe you should become a Charcoal Book Club member today. With your membership, you get a quality monograph each month. Each of these has been carefully curated and selected. The books reflect the diversity of genres, photographers, and styles, all of which you'll appreciate and enjoy. And if you don't like that month's selection, you can choose an alternative book of equal value in their catalog. They offer free shipping in the U.S., Canada, and the U.K. It's subsidized elsewhere. Sign up today and use the promo code THECANDIDFRAME at checkout to enjoy 10% off your first membership payment. Another great way to enjoy a regular dose of inspiration is a subscription to Frames Magazine, a publication dedicated to showcasing exceptional photography. Published quarterly, the magazine is printed on high-quality paper, and the images by photographers like Martin Parr and Amy Vitale are rendered beautifully. It is a magazine that encourages you to stop and linger on an image rather than absently swiping past it like you would on your phone or tablet. Enjoy what they have to offer by subscribing today and use the promo code THECANDIDFRAME to enjoy a 10% discount on your monthly and yearly subscription when you visit readframes.com forward slash join. I see a lot of photographs that people take of strangers on the street, you know, the, the, the street portrait. But what I'm hoping to see is something genuine that comes yeah. across. A connection. Yeah, a connection. Yeah. And, yeah. and some, oftentimes, 
the thing that makes the the picture is something really subtle. It could just be the lilt of the held or or what they're doing with their hands. So when you're when you're composing the photograph and you're looking at the at the subject, besides that you know that that intensity that you just mentioned, talk to me about the eye for that for that subtle gesture or expression that you know, especially from experience, can make the shot exceptional. I'm not saying I get it all the time or half the time even. I mean, I I don't pose people. I don't, other than telling them to look into the lens and don't smile after maybe they've smiled. By the way, kids understand this. I tell kids, be serious. I don't say don't smile. I never say don't. Don't do this. Don't do that. Be, can you be serious now? We, sh- we photographed you smiling. Can you be serious? And a lot of people start laughing because that's not easy for them to do. <laughs> I want hands in my photographs if I can get them. I usually shoot from waist up horizontally, three feet away. I'm not interested in the legs usually or the feet, maybe the posture. But you can get the posture from waist up. And if there's a, if they're holding something, a cigarette, their glasses in the hand. Uh, they they're they're talking with their hands. I'll try to shoot that. I like gestures. Uh, if they put their hand up and say no, I'd say great. I love that. And they get pissed because they don't want me to <laughs> photograph. And I photograph it. And so I, if they cover their hand, great. That's a strong emotion. That's a strong gesture. So I go for that. You know, once in a while I'll say, can you put your hand, like if they if they cross their arms, that's a tough look, but I don't, I like fingers. So could you drop your hands or, or put a hand here if you want to put your hands up? That subtle gesture, it happens so fast, I can't say I'm a, I'm an expert at getting it, but if I do get it and, and I look at the film, I'll, I, I can recognize that it, it's, it, it's working or it's good. I like photographing people with food, eating, maybe not so much with a stuffed mouth, but or their their uh, an eye is half closed, I don't, an eye is open, and one is closed. I love sunglasses because that adds some visual quality and maybe a mystery about people. I did a whole during COVID. In my neighborhood, I for a year and a half, I photographed only people with masks in my, walking around, and I would approach them, mostly all approached. And that was hard because people didn't want to talk to you during COVID, on, even on the street particularly. I, f- I found the masks intriguing, the variety of masks, the shields, and how it changed, must be, be, must be changing them, you know? And, and, and making them more anonymous. That's a hard question to answer with the exact pose. I, I will ask people to, to stand on one foot sometimes. When they do that, the foot that they're standing on, their shoulder goes down, might have, and the other shoulder goes up. I, I rather not have uh, shoulders um, straight on and even so the head is straight up and down and the shoulders are across so that you get a cross-like feeling to the head and shoulders. I want a shoulder turned a little bit, weight on one foot so one shoulder is higher, uh, a turn, a semi-profile, 
or directly. And I mean, it really depends. It really depends. It's, it's hard to say. I sort. I, I, I try to be intuitive. That's a good. I work intuitively and quickly. Uh, I don't want to bother people too much. I have a friend, Ethel. She can sit on a bench meeting a stranger and talking to that person for a half an hour. I say, Ethel, let's go. Come on. And uh, <laughs> But she gets, she gets good images. So everyone works differently. Everyone, I, I, I don't copy anyone. I try to be my own myself. Be your own self. Don't shoot like anyone else. Shoot like you shoot. And, and, and hone that, become an expert in the way you photograph, and then maybe someday people will start following you. I love street photography because it's always an adventure. It's always a challenge. I think the hardest thing to do in photography is to photograph strangers on the street, not candidly, but when they're aware of you, when they know they're being photographed, and to get them to cooperate. I think it's easy to do candid photography because you're just laying back. You're not revealing yourself and you're not risking anything. I feel I'm risking something going up to people. I've never been attacked. I've been yelled at. I've been uh, told to fuck off. <laughs> but I, I, I know my, I know my, I push a little bit, but I, I mean, I'm not a Bruce Gilden that, that is attacking people two feet away with a flash. I, and I say thank you, and I try to be kind. And You know, a lot of people enjoy it. I go in with the assumption that they're, they're going to say yes, enjoy it, and that, hey, it's my work. It's, uh, it's, it's how I work, and it's, I'm making art. I'm never trying to trash anyone or make them look bad. And I'm, I'm doing something important, at least for me. And that gives me the courage, I guess. Often I don't have the courage and I go buy something. And I don't know why I do that. It's, always, it's hard to be always up with the camera on the street. Yeah. It, it really is. You, you do street photography, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah that's the majority that's of stuff that I do. So yeah. I completely relate. Do you go up to people at all? Or do you do what yeah. you Yeah. No, I I, I kind of go back and forth when yeah. it, for me, yeah, I do uh, when I choose to do a portrait of uh, do a street portrait, uh, I feel like I it's it's more than the person looking like a a, a character to me because right. in right. LA you got no right. shortage of people who look interesting because yeah. you know, unlike probably other parts of the country, there's a there's a a high degree of self awareness in terms of how you know how people dress and how they right. compose themselves so it, it's there's some people who i see who are obviously dressing themselves and composing themselves because they want to be seen right. and those aren't the people that i tend to gravitate mm -hmm. to to make a, a photograph I'll, I'll look at them and i'll appreciate them for what what they mm -hmm. look like or what That's they're doing but but I, i'm looking for something where something just in inside of me just resonates yeah, and yeah. usually it's it's kind of ordinary people, but that I see something that I find extraordinary, mm -hmm. and it's just, it, it, and for me it's just what attracts me also when it when it comes to my general street photography. There's a certain sense of the mundane 
that draws me. And then when I see it a little differently, it really excites me in terms of making a photograph of that scene. And That's the same great. applies for the people that I choose to make a portrait of. Yeah. It's the very That's same good. thing. Good. One of the things you talked about earlier was the fact that, you, especially after going out um, for so long, it can get boring because it's like, right. uh, you know, there's a sameness to them. But you know, a lot of what you've been doing over the last couple of decades is, is producing these books. And one of the things you've talked about is the is the idea of going out and and thinking about themes, right? In in context of what you're eventually going to be doing with with the images in a layout and in the book. Talk to me more about the idea of going out with with themes in mind, and if you can sure. give me some examples, that'd be great. Sure. I mean, I, I, from almost day one, I've worked uh, what I what everyone would call long-term project, long-term photographic project. So my first book was Identical Twins. And so I would go out. I got that idea from seeing Identical Twins on the street. I remember in May of 1972, I met three sets of twins on the street in one weekend. One weekend. I shot them photographed them, I stopped them, I, I liked the way they looked, and I liked what I got, and that gave me the idea to do more. So one thing is I get my ideas and my themes from my work. Things pop up, like now I'm in New York, so I, I, I'm photographing people in their cars, in their cars, standing outside their cars. I don't know if it's ever going to amount to anything. I'm not going out every day looking only for that. I might have three or four themes going on at one time. The walker in the city. New York is a pedestrian city. So for years, I've been photographing people walking. Those are candid. And sometimes I meet someone and I'll say, could you walk for me or could we walk together and I'll photograph you. So it's most, that's a mostly candid deal how they walk, where they're walking, what's in the background. Um, so I'm finding themes as I go by being out and, and photographing. One obvious theme, of course, was Coney Island. And that, that's a theme of, in of itself because it's there. It's, an, it's a neighborhood. It's an area. And I can keep going there. And just I could be on the beach all day and just shoot that. There's different areas there. I think having a theme when you go out energizes you, gives you motivation, and gives you something concrete to work on and to maybe turn into an article, an ar a magazine article or, a, or a, uh, something for a podcast or, or eventually a book. For me, th the best I could do is to make a book. I mean, to me, that's the climax. That's the peak, doing books. I could have a show. That's great. I could have a, an article in, published. I can have some photos published. A book. So for a book, you need 100 photographs. You need 150 photographs. You need 80 photographs. So I have to keep making photographs on that theme. The book can't just be your 100 best photographs unless you're famous. Publishers want stories, photo stories, I think. And, and we want to do photo stories. So the themes that are important to me as a way of, 
getting my work out and as a way of fi- feeling uh, committed and that I'm onto something, that I'm saying something. I, I say that anyone can take a great photograph here and there, give a camera to a chimp and teach him how to click the shutter and he or she is going to make a good image sooner or later. Putting work together on a theme in a coherent way, to me, is the mark of a, a more advanced photographer. I mean, whether how advanced is another issue. Saying something about our world, uh, contributing, talking about how you see and what you see in, in a meaningful way. So the, the, the isolated photograph here and there doesn't do anything for me. So I want to work on a theme over a period of time. So my books have been 50 years, 40 years, 23 years, six years, six years uh, in the making, in the shooting, not and the making, I guess. The making is a, another year. To me, themes and long-term projects and doing books are what I'm about. And that's how I've Structure. I mean, I didn't plan that. I don't know. I don't any. I, I don't know any other way of working. Probably, you know. So I don't know if that answers your question. But no, that does. That yeah. does. So, so in, in in line with that, when you sit down and begin working on a project that you've you you you're con- conceptualized conceptualize conceptualizing as a book, yeah. how how do you begin in terms of your selection? Are you making prints and then laying them out uh, mm-hmm. putting them on a board are you using the computer in terms of just like the initial yeah, right. the initial gestation of the of of the of the book how sure. how do you work well so i have an idea and I'm, okay i'm photographing twins and it's go slowly because how often do you see I, only identical twins because that's how i know they're twins dress the light so i have three photos i make prints then I have another year goes by. I have eight photos that I like. I've met some twins. I get involved in the twin community a little bit. I went to a twin convention to photograph twins. So it grows. So what I do is I use prints. I, I make eight by 10 prints in the dark room, all black and white. My books, I've done 10 books. Seven of them are black and white and three are color. Two, two are color, maybe. One Coney Island, yeah. I think two, two, three are color. So with the black and white, I make prints and I, I lay them out, the images, and I might have 10 photographs. And then I have 20, and then I have 30. So I have to get a bigger and bigger table or whatever. And then I, and I start, see, I lay them out and sequence them as soon as I know I'm onto something or I, as soon as I know it's a project. And then, I come back from a nut, like even Coney Island. I come back from a shoot, I make prints, I have 10 new images. I lay out what I have already. And then where do these 10 go? I try to seek, put them in a sequence. And oh, this one's like that one already in the sequence. It's better. I'm going to put that in and take that other one and take that one out. So I edit and I sequence as I go, as I shoot. That's the best way. You can't shoot and and for five, five, 10 years and say, okay, I'm going to do it. You can do this. I'm going to do a book. And you have 200 prints, let's say, finally done. 
and then start sequencing. You can do it, but it's much better to do it as early as possible because you know it and, the, and you start sequencing and the sequence gives you information. It tells you what you have too much of. It tells you that you don't have too many of this part of what you want to say and you better go out and shoot for that. It tells you where to, where to shoot. It tells you what's missing. And it tells you how good it is in a way. And, and if, if, if what you have in your mind is coming out on your, in your photographs. So that's really important. It's a good question. I'll go out like I went to the Macy Parade. Well, I don't shoot. I shoot parades, not the parade. I didn't even go into the parade. I did the peripheral the two hours, three hours before the parade started. Or while the parade was going on, there was still lots of people at the beginning of the parade. I didn't have much in mind there other than a, 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 a good shoot, interesting photographs. I might be doing and doing portraits of, of people, probably in costume. I haven't even developed the film yet. I will go to different events looking for certain things. And other times I'll just take the camera and go in the park or go up on Broadway in my neighborhood and start shooting. And half the time I'll get something that might fit into a current project. I have three or four or five projects going at once. Some might have 10 or 15 images. Some might have 30 images. So I rarely go and say, I'm going to look for one thing by going out today, and that'll be it. My antenna is up, hopefully, 360 degrees from where, wherever I walk, looking for a variety of stuff, anything that interests me and shoot. I have lots of individual photographs that I print and I like, but I don't think I'll ever do anything with. It doesn't fit into any of the projects that I really want to see get the light of yeah. day. One of the things I've been doing is thinking about um, process. Uh -huh. not, not so much the mechanics of making the photograph, but right. in terms of answering the question of why am I making the photographs? Because, yeah. you know, I love making photographs. That's right. that's always sort of the easy answer, but I think there's there's some deeper things, and one yeah. of the things I've been uh, uh, thinking about for me was that I felt that the camera and the and the creating pictures gave me a voice that people would listen to, mm -hmm. and one of the, you write something really interesting in in early in. Uh, in in the early part of your book, and I wanted to read this and have you sort of expand on it. Uh, you say, photography takes me beyond myself, yet paradoxically plunges me deeply into myself and instructs me about the world and about who I am. It gives me direction and purpose. It is my shrink, my antidepressant, and my <laughs> salvation. It scratches my creative and expressive urges. I truly believe that it has saved my life by giving me permission to be myself. And I love that last line about giving you permission to be yourself. And I really would love to hear you talk more about what that means. Oh, that's beautiful. Did I write that? Holy shit. Yeah, yeah. you did. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah no, I, I wrote that. You know, I grew up in Pittsburgh. 
I was going to be a doctor, lawyer, or engineer, according to my parents. Graduating high school, I'm going to college. So I didn't want to be a doctor or educated as a doctor because I don't like the sight of blood. I mean, this is like teenage thinking. I'm not a lawyer because I, I, get, I get nervous getting up in front of the class and reciting in high school. So what's left? An engineer. Okay. So I went to Carnegie Mellon in engineering. And by the third year, I mean, it was, that's how I made it my life's choice. By the third year, I loved my um, humanities classes and, and didn't like my science and engineering classes. I graduated as an engineer, a metallurgical engineer. I went in Pittsburgh. I went to uh, Bethlehem, PA, the other side of the state, and worked for the Bethlehem Steel Company. This is in the middle 60s. Uh, and then I went into the Army. I was in Germany for two years. Uh, as a second lieutenant, because I took ROTC, this is a long, and I grabbed, I got a camera for my the first time ever, and there happened to be on the base a dark room, so I had free time. There was no war going on, thankfully, and I spent time in the dark room. Came out, came to New York, went to Columbia, got a master's degree in business and MBA, worked in in the business world in New York, in, in marketing and advertising on, on um, Madison Avenue, but all the while taking pictures because I had this camera from Germany, a Zeiss Icon Contaflex. And then uh, I said, what am I doing working? I want to be an artist, you know? And I tried to write, I did ceramics, I painted, and I wasn't very good at any, but I had this camera, and I'm in New York, and it's so visual. This is in 1968, 1969, 70, and I love the street. I love the faces on the subway, and I said, okay, I'm going to try photography. So I bounced, you know, from, from, my, from ages 21 to 34, I moved 20 times. I was bouncing around like most young people, unsure of what they wanted to do. The camera gave me stability and gave me eventually an identity. It gave me a reason to go out. Like taking a walk for me is boring. Yeah. Whether it's down uh, Madison Avenue or Broadway or in the park. But if I have a camera, I have a reason to be there. And I found even when I was in the Army, I had this camera. I photographed my men working. I, I did some portraits. I was terrible. I did scenics. We, I traveled to Italy and, and Yugoslavia and all this and did scenics. But that camera seemed to be my friend. So it, I say it saved my life because I was, I was rootless in a way. And the camera settled me down and... and, and, and for the first time, I really was doing what I liked. You know, I didn't like engineering. I didn't love graduate school. Uh, I didn't like working in a corp. I worked in a couple corporations in sales and marketing. And I worked for other people. I didn't like that. So the camera gave me a reason to, to go out.
I guess is the best way I can say it. And, and a way to be committed and a way to meet people. I didn't, you know, and, and a way to be an artist. So it fulfilled everything that I didn't have in a way. And that's why I say it saved my life. And I, I remember I had a girlfriend or I broke up. I was depressed. How do I get out of my depression? Pick up the camera and go to the pier along the water. I lived in Greenwich Village uh, and, and photograph on a nice day. You know, I had friends and all that too, but the camera was my friend also. So, And I, I was kind of shy and probably still am. Uh, it just, it gives you another reason for being. And for me, it just grew into the reason for being, in a way. And my wife accuses wow. me of putting that first in our relationship. <laughs> and I say, no, no, no. She's there at the door listening. <laughs> and, and sometimes she's probably right, you know? Yeah, I've I've had that conversation with my wife as well. Yeah, so you're yeah. not you're not alone. It takes you away from the family, you know, or you bring them with you, but they get bored and they say, "Okay, let's do this. Let's. What are you doing? Come on." So, so I not that I threw myself into it. I just got into it, and then I started teaching at ICP early on. I've taught there now every year since 1976, except for one year. Uh, I love teaching. That so I have an uh, an identity as a teacher, as a photographer, curator. I swore that I would be happy in my adult life. My dad was a shoe salesman and managed a shoe store, retail store. He never was happy. He would always complain coming home all the work he had to do and how physical it was. I said, I don't want that. I want to find something that I love to do. So it took me a, maybe seven or eight years after college to find that. I had lots of jobs in my 20s and different situations. And I found the camera and I, it saved my life. It's, I, yeah. And, I'm ha and I, I've yeah. never been unhappy doing what I do. I mean, I know I have tons of students. They stop photographing after three years, after five years. They quit after 10 years. They get discouraged. I've never gotten discouraged. I've always enjoyed it. To me, it's not a business, and I'm, I feel blessed and lucky. And, like, I shouldn't be so happy in what work I'm doing. It's unfair because 90% of Adults don't like what they're doing, or at least when I was growing up. Maybe not so much now. People are doing what they like now. And I tell my students, drop out of, quit your job that you hate and do what you really love because we're only here for a short time. And why yeah. waste a third of your life in an office or, or, or in a job that you, you, you despise just because... Amen. You can go on a vacation <laughs> for a week in the summer. and Well, because you have to make money to eat. That's important. Find ways to make money that aren't oppressive and that can support you without you committing robberies or mayhem or murder. You can do it. You can do it. There's no question. And I did it. So. <laughs> well, my last question, that which I ask each guest, is that I asked them to recommend another photographer 
for our listeners to discover and explore and can be anyone, someone you've long admired or someone you've recently discovered. So who would that one photographer be and why? Yeah, that's a very easy question for me to answer. A Margarita Mavro Mikolas. She's an amazing photographer. To me, the best photographer that I know. Uh, She's Greek. She lives in Tokyo now. I love the fact that she's never lived a day in her life in one spot more than four years. I met her here in New York. She was a student of mine at ICP in 2011, and since then she's grown amazingly. Uh, She has a really good uh, 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 Instagram account. You could... It's it's Tita T I T A underscore Mavro M A V R O. Uh, she's a world traveler, and she's an exceptional photographer, uh, street photographer, both candid and what I would call approaching people. She moves people around. People love her. She's amazing. She's quick. She's incisive. Uh, I'd love you to interview her someday. I really would. <laughs> well, thank you for that. And thank you for your time. It's always a thank pleasure you. to sit down and talk with you. It's great. Great. Thank you. Thanks to Harvey for joining us. Find out more about Harvey and his work by visiting harveysteinphoto.com. If you're hearing this episode before February 18th and you are in the Los Angeles area, I encourage you to sign up for Chris Buck's The Surprising Portrait Workshop. This three-day workshop is the first that Chris has conducted here in Los Angeles, and in it, he will share how he created iconic portraits of people like Nick Offerman, Steve Martin, Gillian Anderson, and Barack Obama. Find out more and sign up by visiting chrisbuck.com. And if you're a fan of our show, you can write reviews on whatever service you use to listen to podcasts and share a favorite episode on social networks, be it Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. Please use the hashtag TheCandidFrame. You can also support us financially by contributing via PayPal or Patreon. Thanks to MB and Laurie Sandler for their recent contributions. And if you can't find every episode of the show on whatever service you use to listen to podcasts, download the Candid Frame app available for Apple iOS and Android. And because of your generosity, it's free to download and use. No additional purchases are required. The Candid Frame audio engineer is Martin Taylor, who you can find at theothermartintaylor.com. The show's senior producer is Cynthia Parker, and our music is from Kevin McLeod, whose royalty-free music can be found at incompetech.com. And this is Ibarian X, and this is The Candid Frame.